I'm Nick Harcourt and welcome to another episode of The Sound of Success, the podcast where we talk with movers, shakers, and just plain cool people about music. Joining us on this episode of The Sound of Success is Amanda Palmer, best-selling author, feminist, songwriter, community leader, pianist, and ukulele enthusiast. I first became aware of Amanda through her work with the punk cabaret duo, The Dresden Dolls. Her solo career has featured such groundbreaking works as the crowdfunded Theatre is Evil album, which debuted at the top of the Billboard 200 in 2012 and remains the top-funded original music project on Kickstarter. In 2013, she presented her TED Talk, The Art of Asking, which has been viewed over 20 million times, and then she expanded it into the New York Times best-selling memoir, The Art of Asking, How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Let People Help. Amanda was an early adopter of the Patreon platform to fund her artwork with an average of 15,000 patrons, micro-supporting her creations each month. In 2019, she released her album, There Will Be No Intermission, and spent the next year touring the record with its themes and songs of life, death, abortion, and miscarriage. Amanda is originally from New York, but since March 2020, she's been living and working in Arturo. I hope I got that right. Arturoa, she's going to tell me, in New Zealand. Amanda, thanks for working with the 16-hour time difference between LA and New Zealand. Welcome to the Sound of Success. And tell me, I know I completely butchered that pronunciation. <laughs> no, actually, you kind of nailed it. it it's um, Aotearoa. And okay. that is the... Um, that is the, the the native pronunciation of uh, New Zealand, which, um, as you can imagine, was was not the original name of this island. <laughs> and uh, it means it translates into uh, Te Reo Maori, which is the native language here, as the land of the long white cloud, which is a pretty great descriptor of this gorgeous country. So I mentioned right at the end of that intro that you've been living in New Zealand since, well, the beginning of the pandemic. You were actually on tour there when everything started locking down. Can you take us through what I would imagine had to be a very quick decision process to get your husband, Neil, and your son, Ash, into the country with you before that option disappeared? Yeah, it was a wild moment that I still sort of, I, I still can't believe it happened. I wake up every morning and I look out my window and I'm like, <laughs> I can't believe I'm here. I can't believe all of this happened. Uh, and I've been here over two years now. So the short story is I put out um, that album that you mentioned, There Will Be No Intermission. Mm -hmm. um, I went on a worldwide tour to promote the album and to do the stage show, which was a really heavy duty four hour solo piano and storytelling stage show. There were about 80 theater dates all over the world, all over Europe, America, Canada, Australia, and the last four shows were in New Zealand. Um, I was supposed to wrap up the tour doing two shows in Auckland, Wellington, Christchurch, and Ash, uh, my then four-year-old, um, and Neil, the baby daddy, were, were basically stationed near me while I was touring. So when I toured the States, they were in New York. When I toured Europe, they were in London. And then to wrap up the tour, we all went to Australia and we Got were it. based in Melbourne. Mm. And everyone remembers that week, like when it really hit the fan. And I was alone in uh, New Zealand because I just bopped over and left Neil and Ash behind in Melbourne to finish up these four shows. Right. And we had to make a really quick decision. It was like, oh my God, the world's going into lockdown. Do we say 
you know, do I come back over to Australia? Should you come over here to New Zealand? Should we just race back to New York? What should we do? And I looked at it and I was like, you know, if we're going to be locked down for a couple of weeks, and I'm sure this won't last more than a couple of weeks. Right. Why don't we just do it in New Zealand? You know, it's beautiful here. We'll get a place in the countryside near the beach. Let's just take two weeks. And, you know, we were going to spend time as a family together anyway. What a gift. <laughs> so yeah. they got on the last flight, literally the last, you know, the last day that you could fly without going into quarantine. Ash and Neil got on a flight and they came to New Zealand and the rest is history. You know, I know the musicians and artists, uh, especially those who tour, live a life of constant adaptation. Money, no mm. money, no money, no money, money, no money. Yep. Uh, yep. Um, yep, and, yep, and, ob yep. and obviously living in different places out of a suitcase. Uh, but this was something different. I mean, what were you thinking at that time? And you just mentioned, obviously, that you thought it'd be a couple of weeks. Uh, and then it turned into a couple of months. What were those early yeah. weeks and then months like? Uh, well, they were traumatizing, um, because things also got really difficult for, for separate reasons, um, in my relationship with Neil and mm -hmm. he left. So I was all of a sudden, you know, we assumed that, you know, we would find each other back in New York and figure everything out at that point. And then weeks turned into months and months turned into a year and, you know, no one had any prediction. Like I, I'm not alone in this experience, um, but I was alone in New Zealand with a small child and yeah. no family and no friends, no support system. And I mean, I literally, when I say I came over with a suitcase, I came over with a small suitcase. I didn't even come over with a big suitcase that I had been traveling with because I shipped seven months worth of tour stuff and clothes and books that I knew I was going to see in a couple of weeks back to America from Australia. <laughs> right. I came to New Zealand with a small show bag and that was it. And so I was, um, I mean, to be very honest, I, I have never had a more difficult time in my life. I was watching, you know, COVID in New York go off the rails. Mm -hmm. All of my friends were scared and sad and sick and everything was really confusing and I was watching it from the middle of nowhere in an island alone in a house clutching a child and it was really really bleak and I kept thinking it was going to be over soon and as you know it just continued and continued and then I found myself in the bizarre situation of being in the only country in the world mm -hmm. pretty much they got rid of COVID. Yeah. So while the whole rest of the world raged and masked up and had a certain experience, I was in a country where like the border slammed shut and you could not get into this country to save your life, you know, unless you had a really, really, really special reason to be here. And you went into hotel quarantine for two mm -hmm. weeks and I just stayed because I looked at the experiences of all of my friends with little kids. And I thought, wow, I mean, I could go back to New York and be around my community, but I would still be stuck in COVID world, probably stuck in the house. Or I could stay here in this foreign country where I don't know anybody, but not have to deal with COVID. Like what a crazy choice. <laughs> 
And I chose New Zealand and I kept choosing New Zealand because New Zealand kept not having COVID and New York kept getting worse and worse and worse. But it was really, it was really emotionally draining in a way that I cannot put into words, especially being a solo parent all at the same time. Bizarre is the, the, is the right word, isn't it? I mean, as you said, you're, you're somewhere where there is no COVID because they just locked it out. Um, Yeah. And as you said, back home on the East Coast in particular at the beginning and New York in particular, I mean, you probably knew people who who died like I did. And, you know, I did. And I also, you know, I also I was trying to run my business with no time and no energy, you know, because locking down, you know, we were still locked down in New Zealand for three full months. And the reason New Zealand was able to absolutely eliminate COVID and by absolutely eliminate, I mean, there were no community cases. It's not that there was a little bit of COVID. There was zero COVID in the country. All of the COVID cases in the country were just at the border and then sent to quarantine and never made it outside those walls. And that meant, you know, I couldn't, and I had a child and no childcare, uh, you know, no, no, no aunts and uncles and grandparents and no partner, nothing. And it was just like me trying to figure this out. Mm-hmm. And that meant I effectively could not work. There was very little time in which I could even answer my text messages, emails, forget about songwriting and creativity. Like I was just barely able to do just enough to keep my Patreon running and keep my staff paid. And it was like absolute survival mode. But, you know, crowdfunding absolutely saved my ass because I watched, you know, in addition to watching people getting sick and people dying, I watched a lot of my musician friends uh, just like... Lose their living. Literally lose their apartments, lose their houses, sell all of their gear, in, in one really tragic, heartbreaking case, I watched um, an indie rock friend of mine, you know, who's a, like a legendary indie musician, sell off all of their publishing just mm. to stay afloat. And I was like, oh, my God, every time I heard a story like that, I looked at my Patreon and the checks that kept, that kept coming in, keeping my staff paid, my office paid, my rent in New Zealand paid. And I just thought, I am the luckiest, (laughs) I'm the luckiest musician on earth. I mean, I built it this way for a reason. It's really great, but wow, I really, I don't know what I would have done without, uh, without my community because they kept me afloat and they kept me afloat in a time when I really wasn't artistically offering very much because I wasn't able to, because I was in full time motherhood. And that is a story that I, have not had time to tell because I've been in it, but oh my God, someday when I get a little bit of time, I mean, I wrote about this a lot in my book and I talked about it, you know, on the Ted stage and whatever, like, yay, reciprocity, fans, community, isn't it great? Mm-hmm. And this was like master level. I cannot believe these people are taking care of me. I'm not able to give them very much. And my community turned around and they were like, Amanda, like, (laughs) you've been talking about this for years. Like, you're a a solo mother. You've given us a lot. Like, we get to take care of you for a little while. And it was, it was 
pretty amazing. As you said, you, you built it that way, but you could never have imagined that something like this would support you for two years of not really being able to do what you do. I mean, obviously you've started creating, and I know we're going to talk a little bit about some of the, the stuff you've been doing and are doing, but before we jump into that, so you've had two years as a fully involved stay at home mom, if you can sort of separate that from the work and from the art and from the creativity and obviously uh, the other relationships that you have in your life. That must have been such a gift that you probably don't even know yet just how big a gift. Oh my God. I mean, I, it's all, it's all intertwined, right? Because the only reason I was really able to slowly sort of like disassemble everything and just be present with my kid and pretty much be a stay-at-home mom was because of the artwork that I have made. You know, I had to sort of look at it that way. None of this happened by magic. Like I created a pretty big safety net for myself. Mm -hmm. And even then, like even then, Nick, I didn't want to give it up. Like I was supposed to be, you know, all firing on all cylinders in 2021, making a new album with the Dresden Dolls out there touring, doing European festivals. And if the pandemic hadn't happened, I would have done that. Like my kid would have not gotten a lot of me. And I would have just been out there, you know, raging and writing and succeeding, but I would have not gotten this time with my child. Like this pandemic really tied me to the mast in a way that I never would have had the discipline to do myself because I was too married to my own ambition. Like it took a wrecking ball this big to just be like, shut up, bitch. Just be, be basic for a second. Be with your child. You do not have to be out there and writing and performing and screaming and activisting every second of your life and convincing everyone of your importance. Like, slow down. <laughs> and it took a lot, but it finally worked. You know, conversation and communities have always been up front in your career since the earliest days when you engaged your fans on MySpace. Um, totally. And uh, I know that you told me earlier today that you're a Luddite, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I know you've had some fun and games on TikTok recently, and you were a very early and frequent poster on Twitter. So social media in 2022, how do you wrangle the beast? That is such a um, depressing question. <laughs> I, I, I'm so sorry. Um, well, no, 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 no. It's a good question. I have been thinking about social media deeply since the beginning. And I feel like, you know, I have been on every platform known to man from LiveJournal to MySpace to Tumblr and Snapchat and TikTok and Facebook and Twitter, like Instagram, all of it. And mm -hmm. I... You know, I'm, I'm a Luddite in that I'm terrible at hardware, but I'm really good at people. And, you know, and I don't mean really good in that I nail it all the time, but I love the job and I love communicating. It's why I wound up in this sort of strange area um, that I did where I'm sort of like part musician, but also part therapist and part writer and part you know, internet empresario. And and, 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 and agony aunt as, as well now as well, because exactly. you're on Substack yes. now with your Ask, Ask Amanda advice column. 
Yeah. And I love, I love talking to people. Mm. And it, it, even when I look at my songwriting, you know, it has, it has gotten braver and braver and more direct. Um, the further that you get from my early work as a teenager and then through the Dresden Dolls, like I have just become a braver songwriter and, um, you know, like every album that you look at, there's a little less metaphor and there's a little more direct conversation. And, and that grew up right alongside the internet mm -hmm. as I, as I not only made music for people, but talked to those people all the time, which is a really different way of doing a career than, you know, a Kate Bush or a PJ Harvey, where you really like you deliver the music, but then you're not in a constant relationship with your listeners. Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't think that one is good and one is bad, but it's certainly the way I wanted to do it. And nowadays, you know, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and the sort of the algorithmicness of social media, as opposed to the old days of just blogs and you go to a place on an, you know, on an, you go to the internet to a place and you get some information and then you leave the the sort of infinite scroll world of and algorithms of facebook and and so forth i mean i remember beginning these conversations with musicians 5 or 6 years ago where we were all sort of starting to get worried that this was maybe not what it looked like and that maybe we shouldn't be leaving behind our old tools of communication and putting all of our stock and attention and time and energy into facebook because it was starting to creep us out and it was starting to look like, wait, maybe this is not what it says on the tin. Mm. And maybe, maybe importing our entire communities and using Facebook as the way we all communicate is not such a great idea. And I think we know the answer now. <laughs> like it was a terrible idea. Sure do. We shouldn't, we should not have imported all of our valuable hard won relationships to Facebook because guess what? It's up to Facebook now whether or not we reach them with our tour dates or our album information or whatnot. And the algorithm yep. drives every musician I know batshit fucking crazy. And and yet, you know, I one of my antidotes to that was bringing everyone over to Patreon where at least we could have consistent communication and I could make a consistent salary and not be relying on some sort of, you know, some sort of algorithm to reach the people that I needed to reach when I needed to reach them. Um, and it's why I also still believe in the gold standard of the email list. You know, for, for the people who still check their email, um, it won't be an accident that you stumble upon my tour dates. I will be able to hand them to you and say, listen, you know, I've worked. I worked for this. I worked on an album. I worked putting a tour together. Can I give you the information? Here it is. As opposed to relying on perhaps the algorithm will throw this your way because I happened to want to wear lipstick that day and take a cute picture of me and my kid. And so it floated to the top. I am opinionated about this. <laughs> I've been watching it fall apart for 20 years. Right. Um, and also, you know, different musicians at different levels and different um, phases and eras of their career will need these tools in different ways. So if the Dresden Dolls were coming up right now and I were 25 in 2022, the Dresden Dolls probably would be a TikTok band. And right. we would be, you know, we would be making bizarre, esoteric, avant-garde 
punk cabaret, bloody stripey type bowler hat content for the kids of TikTok and everyone would be loving it. Right. 30 second spots. Yeah. And now that we're in our, you know, now that we're in our forties, you know, will the dress and dolls be a TikTok band? I don't know. Maybe. Do we need to be? I'm not sure. Um, you know, we have, uh, you know, we have a large audience that we can find in a lot of different ways. So I think it really like, it depends who you are and how you are. And also I am no longer the kind of person who wants to spend eight hours a day on the internet the way I did when I was 26. Well, yeah. And you, you know, you've got a kid to take as well, That's which... most of the reason why most of the reason why is the kid, yeah. you know, gone are, gone are the days where I had a blast, you know, like opening up a bottle of wine at 8 PM and talking to Twitter and until up five until you... in the morning. <laughs> but I mean, we had some good times yeah. like drunk, drunk Twitter all night in 2011 was fantastic. And I, and I would still defend it. It was really, it was like, it was so mind opening to talk to people all over the world so openly, you know, that, that those connections were real. I wouldn't poo poo them and I wouldn't say, ah, oh, social media was a giant sure. mistake. Oh, what a failed experiment. But has it changed? You know, Twitter is not in 2022, what it was in 2011. So, you know, the tools change, the times change. Uh, you know, artists change. I'm a mother now. You know, even if I could have that back, I don't know if I would want to sit and chat with people for eight hours on the internet. I'd probably rather be, you know, with my kid on a hike in the woods, like staring at the butterflies. And that's just me now. That may, that may change yeah. again. Well, you know, hopefully we evolve and change and new things come into our life and things make us feel different, you know, different things make us feel a different way, depending on, you know, where you're at in your life and, and all of that stuff. What, what do you think about one guy perhaps owning Twitter? I, I was going to say, when you said one guy, you didn't even need to say that. I was like, are you going to say Elon? Um, I think it's a terrible idea. Well, whoever it is, it happens to be Elon Musk and for, you know, whatever that I don't have I don't have anything against uh Elon Musk personally I think that the internet and the tools that we use um and like for instance I live on a teeny tiny little island in New Zealand population 9000 um not a lot going on you know it's 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 a bunch of people living really beautiful humble lives and they need to communicate um, they need to communicate about, you know, what the weather's doing and whether there was a fire last night and somebody, you know, somebody has a sick animal and needs a vet and, you know, basic communication within this community. And the way people communicate is um, on the community Facebook page. That's the way everybody finds out basic, important information about what's mm -hmm. going on. You know, there was a kid in the community hit by a bus and killed the other day, and that's how everyone got the information. Right. I don't think that that's good. I don't think that a for-profit enterprise should be what we're relying on. I think the internet, now that we know what it is and how we want to use it as a society, I think it should be a public utility. I really do. And I think we should all be marching in the streets to say, like, listen, nothing against Twitter, nothing against Elon Musk, nothing against Jack Dorsey or, you know, or any, you know, or the Zuckerbergs, like you were all doing what you wanted to do. You wanted to run for-profit companies, no harm, no foul, but this is a, this is a community crisis. 
And we really, really need to take the internet back to what it should be, which is, you know, basically like, you know, phone lines or the post or the roads or the water systems. This needs to be a public utility. If this is a for-profit enterprise, we're all going to lose. And these, all of these communities will suffer. And we have a moment in time now where we could possibly back the truck up and you know, I mean, we would need to legislate it and go through the government. But if we really wanted to make it happen, we could. And Elon Musk buying it and us being at the whims of any given person's personalities and predilections is not the way out of here. It's not going to work. You know, you mentioned uh, uh, we'd have to regulate it. That kind of gets complex, though, doesn't it? You know, especially in the United States. Um, yeah, but we have to regulate the mail, too. And no one complains about that. You know, no one complains that like the postal mail isn't a for-profit, you know, system. Like there are important utilities that as a human society, we need to agree, need to basically belong to the collective. And as the collective, we do need to regulate it. Like you cannot send a goddamn pipe bomb through the mail for a reason. <laughs> and we've all agreed as a bunch of people, like you can mail shit. But maybe not that. Don't right. mail a pipe bomb to someone. Like we can make a law saying don't mail someone a pipe bomb. The same way we can make a law saying like you cannot harass, troll, threaten, um, or, you know, otherwise send like terrible mis and disinformation that's eventually going to kill people on the internet. And you, you can actually see the analog there. And that may sound a little extreme, but, you know... I also lived in Germany for a while. You're not allowed to print up and hand out shit with swastikas on it in Germany by law for a reason. And I think that those reasons are legit because we want less suffering. And I mean, it's always going to be hard to agree what those regulations are, but, but the solution is not to place the power and those decisions in the hands of the one point, you know, the 0.001% of the wealthiest people on the planet. You know, I could talk about this stuff for hours um, with you. Forget about forget about music. Music's forget not the music interesting. Stuff. Let's talk about Elon Musk some more. Exactly. Yeah, no, forget about it. Sorry, Elon. You've taken up enough. You've taken up enough airtime, Elon. Um, it's all good. <laughs> no, I, I really could, and you know, maybe uh, maybe some other time. But um, let, let's talk about these music questions. And I do have a couple of more things to ask you at the end of it about uh, what's going on and you know what's coming up next for you. But let's jump into this. What is your first musical memory? Oh, wow. I think probably listening over and over and over and over again to Sgt. Pepper's on my mom's record player when I was like four or five. Mm -hmm. um, my mom had a very small collection of rock records, but that was the one. And I would just put it on over and over and over again. I learned how to work the record player when I was really little. Um, and I was allowed to use it by myself because I was really careful with it. And I would just sit there with this giant honking pair of headphones and listen to that record. And the way a little kid just does not get bored of a song, right. I would just listen to that record over and over and over and over again. Um, and it was in the living room of, the, the the family house that I grew up in and the living room had a closing door it was a separate room 
it wasn't like a breezeway and it wasn't really a social area. It was a little private space that also had the piano in it. And I spent, you know, by a long mile, I spent more time in there than anyone in the family. It had the piano, it had the stereo, and it had a closing door. And that is sort of where my little musical self was born. What a great place to hang out as a, as a, as a kid, the record player. And as you said, you can close the, close the door. Um, so Sergeant Peppers and, and the Beatles, effectively. Yeah, and I mean, the world that they spun, it was so real to me. Like this idea that, you know, there was this mythical band that you could sort of see pictures of on the artwork and, you know, and Eleanor Rigby and she's leaving home and the benefit of Mr. Kite and it's like really evocative lyrics. Um, it felt like a place that I could close my eyes and physically go to. And, you know, for all of their weirdness, like the Beatles don't ever really get described as a theatrical band, but at least, especially that record, I mean, it can't get more theatrical than we're going to pretend to be, you know, these fantasy band members and put on crazy costumes and pose in front of it. Like that was the most theatrical record ever. <laughs> it began and opened with a fake story. And, um, and I loved it. I loved it so much. And my mom also had all these Rolling Stones records and I had no interest in them because I remember seeing like she had her Satanic Majesty's request. And I remember looking at it and going like, oh, this is just like the Beatles. This is going to be like the Beatles. And I put it on and I was like, there's no story. There's the story. Yeah. There's no story. I don't buy these guys. So, yeah, that's when I knew I was full team Beatles. Age four. Very early. Get them young. That's what they say, right? What was the first music that you bought with your own money? I think I was, I was nine or 10 years old and it was at a teeny little record shop in Boston. And it was a vinyl copy of Rant and Rave with the Stray Cats. Nice. And I had the world's, and I had the world's biggest crush on Brian Setzer and thought I was going to marry him. <laughs> you came into the old studio that I, I uh, used to do a radio show at uh, back at KCRW in the day. I had the Brian Setzer orchestra in that studio once. It was. Oh, the whole orchestra. How did they the say? whole orchestra, like a, I don't know, 16 piece band or something like that. Jesus. All, all dressed up as well. Um, what was the first concert that you went to without adult supervision? Oh, well, I'm trying to remember. So I went, the very, very, very first concert I went to was the Beach Boys, but it was definitely with adult supervision because it was with my mom. Mm -hmm. And I think I was 12. And then the first real concert that I went to where I bought a ticket with my own money still had adult supervision, but it was really reluctant adult supervision. It was my stepfather and five of my teeny bopper 12-year-old friends going to see Cindy Lauper at the local Enormo Dome. Nice. Opener, opener Eddie Money. I will never forget that. But that was still adult supervised. And I'm pretty sure, because it's funny, the adult supervision thing has me thrown through a loop. I'm pretty sure it was The Cure. Right. Um, it was me and my friend Holly Young, and we were massive, and I still am a massive Cure fan. And it was on the Disintegration Tour, and I would have been 15. And I think at that point, we either got a ride or one of us had our driver's license. And so we, we managed to go see The Cure without grownups. And that was a, was a life-changing concert. Tell, tell me what that felt like. Well, it changed my life because I remember I was really, really, 
really into the music. And I, I had already collected a bunch of Cure albums. And then Disintegration came out that summer. And I remember the, the Cure already really moved me and touched me. And I loved the production and the songwriting, which was so weird. I feel like The Cure doesn't get enough credit for being as weird as they are mm -hmm. because there's, it's so genre bending. And, you know, they have such a reputation as being like a sad sack goth band, but they <laughs> really aren't because Robert Smith's writing is all over the place. And, um, and then Disintegration came out and the opening chords of Plain Song were almost like, they were like this anthemic, beautiful, I would just crank it in my bedroom or crank it in the car, crank it in my headphones. And the opening chords of that album and that song and capture being 15 to me, everything in my heart, falling in love for the first time, having sex for the first time, like doing everything for the first time. And really like becoming a fully fledged human being. And I remember the darkness of the concert hall. I think it was the Worcester, it would have been the Worcester Centrum. So like you know, 12,000 people, enormous show. And I had nosebleed seats because, you know, I only had 1250 for the tickets or whatever. Right. And, and I remember darkness in the room and you know, that surging excitement of I'm actually going to see Robert Smith with my eyeballs, like the real person who lives and looms really large in my head as this gigantic <laughs> fantasy figure. Right. Even if he's going to be the size of an ant on that stage, I'm in a room with him, you know, because I was obsessed with Robert Smith. And I, you know, it like I had traded up from Brian Setzer and I had traded up from Prince and I was going to marry Robert Smith because I was a girl <laughs> and obsessed with boys and he was the ultimate boy. And then the, the lights sort of flickered and those opening chords of plain song started playing. And I all of a sudden looked around and I realized that this wasn't really about me and Robert Smith, <laughs> this rock star that I was obsessed with. I looked around and I saw the other 12,000 people all take a kind of a collective breath together and my heart exploded with this idea that even though I was obsessed with this band and this music I was I was all of a sudden not alone you were part of a group you were part of a community I was part of a group of people who felt like I did very possibly for a moment and everything changed I it wasn't about the cure anymore. It wasn't about Robert Smith anymore. It was about this feeling of all of a sudden having felt sort of alone all of my life and feeling part of a collective. And it was overwhelming. And, and really like, if, especially if you look at the trajectory of my career, really life altering, because I realized that you know, this music was much bigger than The Cure or these songs or me or my friend. It was about this thread that was connecting everybody in that room. You mentioned uh, that everybody thinks that, you know, The Cure is sad or Robert Smith is sad. And it kind of comes into uh, one of my next questions, which is what do you listen to when you're feeling sad? Oh, it's such a depressing answer, Nick, but I, 
I actually only listen to music nowadays when I'm happy. When I'm sad, I turn to silence and nature and immediate voices like NPR or while well, I'm over here, RNZ as they call it, which is like the national radio station, because that's what I need now. I need to mainline, not aloneness, and I need to hear live human voices talking to me about what is going on right now in order to not feel sad. Fair, fair enough. Yeah. Um, but when I'm when I'm a few levels up from really sad and I'm starting to get my mojo back and I just need something to soothe me, I listen to either Bach or the Copto Twins. <laughs> that's like or I listen to it or to music that happens to to grab me at the moment and I feel like every about every five years I'll come across an album that really like reaches down my throat and grabs my heart mm. and that I you know in that way that I did as a kid I just want I want to listen to it it doesn't feel like I should listen to it or it's kind of pleasant like I really find myself racing to you know to the the act of listening to particular music it doesn't happen very often i think there are like four records in my adulthood and they come along once in a rare blue moon and the last time that happened to me was um with punisher by phoebe bridgers and i heard that album and was like oh god damn it like it's gonna be one of those moments where i just cannot get enough of the sound of these songs and the feeling that these lyrics give me and I, I overused it. I played it into the ground for about two months and then I couldn't listen to it again. I still haven't listened to it again. <laughs> it was like a drug that I built up a tolerance to and then I had to stop. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, that album found me right at the time when I moved from one town to another in New Zealand. And I was in a really fragile place, you know, alone with my kid, very little spare time. Um, and occasionally in the car. And that is what I would put on to just self-soothe. The power of music. Power of Phoebe. Yeah. What do you listen to when you want to dance? <laughs> um, I listen to like old school, dark wave, golf dance club music. I was worried for a moment you were going to tell me that you, you dance in silence now or something. <laughs> I dance in <laughs> silence, Nick. I only dance. I dance to the silent sound of my own sadness. No, I mean, I was a I was a goth club kid. So like the kind of songs that you would put on to make a, a sad sack 22 year old goth girl dance like any 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 upbeat joy division. <laughs> not, not, that, not that there's much of it um upbeat joy division and, and uh upbeat cure and Bauhaus and the Smiths yeah. will get will get me onto the dance floor and crying happily do you have a, a favorite music video and and if you do why oh what a good question thank you I mean I guess I guess I have a few but the one, the first one that came to um, the tip of my tongue when you asked that was actually um, Johnny Cash's cover of Hurt by Nine Inch Nails, which, which isn't, I don't even think it classifies as a music video because it's, it's like a little short film, uh, which a good music video is. So it is a music video, but uh, I think it wins the prize because it brings me to tears because it's so goddamn honest and human 
And it, I mean, it comes with a boatload of context, right? I love that that song was appropriated by <laughs> by Johnny Cash from Trent Reznor, these men who were so completely different, but with similar uh, histories and, and addiction. But then you see sort of Johnny Cash's life flashing before his eyes in a very real way because he has the gravitas of age in that video that Trent did not when he wrote that song and you sort of look at it and the golden musical thread that connects everything and it's overwhelmingly emotional but you kind of need the context it's like if aliens came down from outer space and saw that video I don't think they would be very moved <laughs> but, but if you know the story of that song and these men and who that woman is and what it means to watch Johnny Cash, you know, contemplate his broken gold record or whatever. It's just, it's an incredible video and um, yeah, hats off to the creators of that, the, the, the most emotional and saddest music video of all time. Do you have a, a musical, a recent musical discovery that you would like to share with our listeners? It doesn't have to be a new band, just something new to you. Oh, I like that you specified that it didn't have to be new. Yeah, in in lockdown, I borrowed a bunch of old vinyl records from one of my Islander neighbors who was kind enough to let me go through their record collection and just pick out a bunch of stuff that looks that looks interesting. And I really discovered I'd heard of him and I sort of knew it but I really discovered the joys of listening to Bix Biederbeck. <laughs> mm. And um, I went through a couple weeks of lockdown in the house with my kid where I just listened to the same Bix Biederbeck record over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And it was just, it just became the house wallpaper because I couldn't handle anything else. And it was so easy to listen to and so joyful and just filled up the house with this lovely feeling that I became superstitious about it. And I was like, even though we have all these other records, I just want to listen to that again. <laughs> just kept flipping it over side A, side B eternally for about two weeks. I was recommending uh, listening to some Bics to my patrons and I went to YouTube and there's like a four hour, like four hours of endless Bics on YouTube that's had hundreds of thousands of views. So clearly I'm not the only one who wants to listen to endless Bix. Yeah. We should point out that uh, Bix Biederbecker was uh, a jazz cornet corn and piano, right? Yeah. And very like iconic old school. And the more, the older I get and the more I find myself just listening to music for pure pleasure, Mm. And allowing my mind to just sort of dance over the land of endless possibilities of what could I possibly listen to that would bring me actual enjoyment. You know, do I want to listen to the Beatles or do I want to listen to Phoebe Bridgers or, you know, Michael Nyman or Bach or, or you know, Elton John or the Thompson Twins? Like I have everything at my disposal. All yep. of human history's recorded music is That's there. Right. What do I really want? I find myself thinking about the feeling that music gives you if you can sort of get out of your own way about, you know, there's like what you intellectually want to listen to. And then there's your heart going, 
what you really want to listen to is Duran Duran. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and I feel like as a musician, especially, I've had this conversation with a lot of professional touring musicians. And I feel like all professional touring musicians go through a phase of their career where they're allergic to music. Mm. And I went through a long music allergy because I just craved silence because all of my work life was making music, recording music, listening to other people's music and, right. you know, and just music became work, right? And for all the people for whom music becomes work, you're, you're filled with hatred because music used to be pure pleasure. It's you know, when you me. were, when yeah. you were 15 and listening to the cure and music was just about pleasure and yeah. belonging and love and fucking communing with God. And then all of a sudden you're like, fuck, I have this pile of CDs and this fucking thing that my friend gave me and this fucking thing I have to do for work. <laughs> and I have to re-listen to these fucking mixes. Fuck music. Um, and then you sort of, and then I feel like you come out the other side and actually having a child will help you do that. I have a child and obviously like a six-year-old is still just all about pleasure. Uh-huh. No, no taste making, no work, no nothing. Just like, I want to listen to Katy Perry. I sure. want to, I want to listen to Haunted Cupcake 100 times endlessly. And I feel like since I've come out the other side, I'm like, yeah, let's listen to Haunted Cupcake again, 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 again. And because I have a musician's head, I'll hang out with people who refuse, like they're like not Haunted Cupcake again. And I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. This time, listen to the bass. This time, listen to the snare. This time, listen to the effect on the vocal. Like I could listen to Haunted Cupcake forever, just like Ash, but for different reasons. Anyway, long tangent, but music as pleasure. Yeah, and uh, and and why not a nineteen twenties jazz soloist? That's awesome. Do you have a band or an artist that you love, but you feel they never quite got the the break they deserved? Oh, I really do. Um, my most beloved band of all time, and the band that touched me the most as a teenager, especially, was the legendary Pink Dots. Mm. And. You know, it's sort of like the cure was was sort of my gateway drug. And, you know, I went from listening to pop music to getting a little bit into alternative music when I was about, you know, 12 or 13 through my cool friends and my older siblings. And, you know, all of a sudden, like listening to edgy music like R.E.M. (laughs) and the Red Hot Chili Peppers, you know, back in 1988. Um, And then... I discovered the world of like deeply weird alternative music, like the legendary Pink Dots and Current 93 and Death in June and Coil when I was about 15, um, mostly through a boyfriend of mine who also introduced me to Nick Cave and PJ Harvey and, um, you know, all of that sort of like weird stuff that he had brought over from Germany with him where he had moved from the good stuff. (laughs) <laughs> and the, the legendary stuff. pink dots were sort of I, I cannot describe the feeling that i got listening to those songs and going into the world of edward caspell's head the songwriter but it was almost like you know take that feeling that i got at five years old listening to sergeant peppers and then amplify it a hundred times um, you know, because the Beatles belonged to everybody. 
And here was this band that belonged to almost nobody, almost like showing up like a secret doorway in a in a stone wall with the blinking lights over it saying magic theater, not for everybody like you, Amanda, come in. <laughs> and like, right. And it, it was, I was passionately in love with this band and I still am. And the, you know, and the production was so lo-fi and so simple, but Edward Caspell's emotion so upfront in his vocals and his songwriting that I, I felt like I was in a love affair with this band. And I still sort of do. I mean, I can put on those early Pink Dots albums and just feel transported into a land of total belonging and passion and comfort. And I, you know, I know all of the studies that have been done about what, you know, like a teenager's brain on music and why the music that you discover when you're 15, 16 and just post-pubescent is so critically important. And I have tried all my life to turn people onto this band. <laughs> like, You're doing it again right now. Yeah. They opened up for the Dresden Dolls. I did a collaborative record with Edward Caspell as one of my Patreon projects. But it really, it really is an acquired taste. And they also have the Frank Zappa problem of having put out 50 records. And so anyone who's turned on to the band has no idea where to start. And it's, it can be really difficult to find your way because the legendary Pink Dots have had a billion iterations and members and eras. And some of it is really like minimal blippy electronic. And some of it is really organic and jammy. And it, it, they almost over the course of their career, they've sounded like seven different bands. So it can be hard to turn people on because it really needs to be like a curated hand-holding experience. And, and still making music? Still making music. Yeah. Still touring 40 years later. Amazing. Yeah. But, you know, like really teeny and barely packing clubs. Do you have a band or an artist who's a guilty pleasure? In other words, you haven't told anybody yet. You're going to tell us now. Oh, uh... I mean, first of all, I, I think guilty pleasure is a, is a rotten term because no music should be considered guilty. Um, but people might be surprised to know that I really, really, really love Avril Lavigne. Um, okay. <laughs> I've said it before. I don't, I don't think I have a current guilty. I mean, maybe my current guilty pleasure is Katy Perry because me and my kid have been listening to firework on endless repeat in the car. And I've been screaming at the top of my lungs. And if you need like a, like a breaking news, Amanda has never told anyone guilty pleasure. It's, um, it's try everything by Shakira. <laughs> I love that. You might not peg me as a Shakira fan, but given my life and the theme of my life, listening to Shakira say, <laughs> Uh, like you got this girl, like you're going to make tons of mistakes, but everything's going to be fine in the end. Just keep on stumbling. And this like totally ham fisted, terrible pop lyrics. <laughs> and there I am sobbing in the front seat of my car. So yeah, Shakira. Well, first of all, I, I get what you're saying. And, uh, I've also had a couple of friends who've played in, in her band through the years as well. And nothing but fantastic stories, which is cool. To yeah. Know, right? Yeah. Well, and again, like having a kid will remind you that pop music is amazing and like pleasure and music are important. <laughs>
So, so we've rolled through the questions and I always finish up with, uh, with one last question and that is, how are you feeling right now? Nick, to be totally honest, I'm feeling completely overwhelmed. I have been in New Zealand for two years. I haven't seen my home in New York for almost three years. I'm going home in three weeks. Um, Roe v. Wade is about to be overturned and I did an entire year of abortion rights touring and I am afraid that my country is going to fucking hell in a handbasket and I'm um, I'm confused and afraid and also in pretty good spirits. I'm feeling like we are about to enter a moment in history that is really wild and I don't think you or me know what's about to happen next, but holy shit, it's getting weird. <laughs> I think I think we're there. I mean, you know, the uh, the dystopian future that they talked about is is happening. We're we're in it. It is upon us. Time to listen to good music. Time to yeah. crank up the Shakira and <laughs> <laughs> let's break out the booze and have a ball. <laughs> Jesus. Let, let me ask you one last question then before we go. Uh, you're coming home. You're going to be wrapping up, obviously, your your life in New Zealand, and you've made a, a new family over there, friends and people that you've worked with. That's something that you know will be with you forever, right? Because you've mm. gone and lived somewhere during a pandemic and created a whole new life for yourself. How, how are you feeling about putting that aside? I guess you know for now, putting it in its in, in its place, and then um, moving forward, coming back to the states, but obviously to we just talked about the political situation to a, a new world in the in the US. Are you getting ready to to make more music? Have you been writing music? Do you have new projects? Yeah, so that's a that's a good question. I have barely composed for the last few years because I I really just took myself into domesticity and motherhood. But I carved out time to write free songs. Um, all of them about eight months apart, like <laughs> almost like children. Mm. Um, and I'm about to record and release the third one to my patrons. But I've been doing this all really quietly because I haven't had time to make a big noise and wave my hands around on social media or go doing any, you know, promotion. Mm. And this has been the beautiful thing about my Patreon is I... I can make music and just put it out for my teeny little home team and not release things publicly and not make a big um, song and dance about it. And I think what I may do is collect these songs and maybe add a, add a few little bits and bobs and put them out as an EP when I get back to the States. And by the time I actually get it together to put it out and promote it, it may be time to come back and visit New Zealand. <laughs> so like, it may work out organically. Um, but, you know, as a, like, I feel like you and I can have a much bigger, longer conversation about this. And someday I hope to have it with you or with someone about how having patronage and being fully crowdfunded and fully supported has changed the way I feel about and look at songwriting. Because, you know, in the old days when I was just a teenager with an invisible, non-existent audience, I felt one way about songwriting. And then I became known, you know, and was on a label and knew mm. that I had an instant audience of thousands of people who could hear these songs 
soon enough. And that was another thing. But, you know, it was also about chart position and sales and, sure. you know, yeah, radio. what producers are you working with and who's going to pay attention to this shit and run, 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 big, you know, the dog and pony show. And now I feel like I've sort of gone back to my roots. I'm like, instead of having an invisible audience, I have this little audience who are really there to support me and pay my salary, like mm. actual patronage. And as long as I am writing from the heart and really being brutally honest about my experience and making the music that I want to make, these people are here to support me. Um, and I'm not thinking about the algorithm and I'm not thinking about what will go viral and I'm not thinking about what, you know, the guys at Roadrunner Records will think about this as a radio single. Mm. I'm back to like, this is the music I just want to make because it's coming out of me. And like that has been the really crazy ride that the patronage has taken me on because I sit down at the piano and I'm like, oh, fuck, I remember this. I remember just writing because this is what came out and it doesn't matter what it is or what it sounds like or how long it is or, you know, what's going to happen to it later. Like this is just coming out of me and it's real. And the songs that I wrote while I was here felt kind of like that, like desperate necessities <laughs> that like happens to go out to the public, but whatever, you know, I needed to do this and there it is. And you guys are paying me anyway. So here's the fruit of my labor. And I really hope that more artists adopt patronage for this reason, because in a world of algorithmically run media, I think we need more artists sitting down just going like, fuck everything. What is it that I want to do? What is it that I want to say? What's coming out of me instead of, you know, what's the world going to respond to? This, this, has been, uh, this has been a fab time hanging out with you uh, through, the, through the interwebs this evening in LA and during the day in New Zealand. Thank you so much, Amanda. And uh, thank you. Good luck getting ready for the trip home. I'm so homesick and I'm so weirded out by what has happened to my country, but I also, God, I miss it. I can't wait to go home. Well, safe, safe travels, happy trails. And uh, Amanda, thank you so much. Thank you. Bye, Nick. The Sound of Success is hosted and produced by myself, Nick Harcourt, for Spark Network. Our theme music is by Keita Klein. For more episodes, find us on Spotify, Apple, sparknetwork.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.